Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. My name is Maze McCabe and I'm the UK Editor. And I'm Brittany Kiefer, the Creativity and Culture Editor. Today we have a great interview with the founders of Common People, which is the new networking group for people from working class backgrounds by our Deputy Editor, Gemma Charles. Before we go into that, last week was the DNAD Awards. Brittany, how important are the DNAD Awards to creatives? Oh, I think they still matter a lot. I mean, I always that week will get texts and emails from creative leaders who are excited about being shortlisted and then winning pencils. I I would say honestly, I think they've they've gone down in prominence a bit. I'm not totally sure, you know, all the factors why of why that might be. I think that traditionally it was kind of seen as the, you know, the craft awards and something that was even more elite to the creative audience than perhaps other award schemes. Um, I think as it's grown and become more global, perhaps it it feels more competitive or not as um, focused as it used to be. But I think it's still an exciting time for creatives to get their work recognized and uh, always interesting to see what pencils go out to people. So this year's jury gave out three black pencils in total. So that's the highest um, accolade that people receive, including one to Abbott Mead Vickers BBDO's Womb Stories for Art Direction in Film. That was the only black pencil that a UK agency got. So that's just another example of um, AMV's kind of award-winning run on for the client entity there. Yeah, and it's actually the second time they've received a black pencil for this client. Body Forms Vivo La Vulva, which I believe was 2019, won a black pencil as well. And then do you think, um, you know, is that a sign of, of kind of the strength of that relationship you've got? Yeah, I think it's one of the rare examples, actually, of a agency-client relationship that really has longevity and that because of that trust, you can see the journey from when they started out. Like I remember, you know, several years ago, there was an ad with the scene I remember as a woman on a horse. <laughs> and it, there are a lot of scenes of like people playing sport and bleeding. And then that went into Blood Normal, where which was the first UK ad to depict real period blood and then Viva La Vulva and now Womb Stories. And they've just done so many amazing pieces of work and you can see that evolution and how they've grown more confident as a brand. And I think a lot of that is due to that strong relationship they have with the agency. Right. I mean, so the other black pencils um, went to U.S. agencies. There was one for MasterCard's True Name campaign, which was by McCann, New York which supported the rights of transgender and non-binary people to choose their chosen name on their credit cards. Um, and also there was a black pencil for the city of Chicago's Boards of Change project, um, which it did with FCB Inferno, which turned the boards that were used to barricade storefronts during the BLM protests into polling booths. Um, what do you think of sort of this year's broader crop of winners, Brittany? Was there any, any themes? There seems to be a bit of a, a kind of purpose edge to those three campaigns. Yeah, well, I in a way, I wasn't surprised that two of the Black Pencil winners reflected the some of the major social issues of this past year. And of course, you know, the, there is the Black Lives Matter campaign, and that was reflective of the resurgence of that movement in the past 12 months. But I was also quite struck by some of the criticism I saw of that online. And it's not a new criticism to say that these awards, not just DNAD, but all, all of the major award schemes for advertising have 
gone in a direction of awarding work that is very purpose-driven and responding to social issues of the moment. And I think that there's a healthy degree of cynicism about that, which I share, which is often, you know, it was this made because it's responding to a trend to get the attention of juries, or is there a true authentic purpose behind it? And um, I, I saw some people on Twitter kind of responding to that and feeling quite frustrated and calling it, you know, fake work that was made to impress juries with little impact. Um, I, I think that, you know, Robin Frost, who's a creative who I follow on Twitter, she summed up a lot of that criticism in a thread and she was just kind of capturing something that I hear a lot of creatives say, which is that they want to make work that matters, that catches people's attention. And the awards are maybe secondary to that, but the awards still really matter. And they matter to people's careers. They matter to clients. They It can make the difference in someone getting promoted or getting a big new job. But there's, you know, on the flip side, this real danger that it, is in, it becomes an industry that is just creating this work with little impact to win awards. And I can think of few other industries where these kinds of awards matter so much. Um, but I think especially like the ad industry kind of has this uneasy relationship with awards for the, for this reason. But I was really struck by something she said that Robin said, which I'll just quote here. She said, fake work being awarded reinforces the idea that we can suggest progress without making it. And we're still all talking about why there's so little progress on real issues in the industry. Take the energy and passion from the fake stuff and use it to solve for real. And perhaps this frustration got even bigger this past year when there's been so much change and so much real upheaval in society generally and so much frustration at the status quo and lack of progress on issues like diversity. And I just think, you know, what she said is so true rather than focus so much on making work that could win an award. Why not turn that progress uh, to your own house, get your own house in order. I think that will make, and that will just kind of naturally flow out into more creative work. Yeah, because there's sometimes a question about the kind of, you know, in particularly some campaigns, not necessarily the ones that we've mentioned previously, but where the the people, you know, the, the diversity that they're striving for in the campaign is possibly not reflected in the group of people that are putting the campaign together. Exactly. What do you think of that? Do you think that because you've been at campaign longer than me, do you think that there you've seen a shift like in the awards and what kind of work is being awarded and upheld? I think there's ever since I've been at campaign, there's been complaints about sort of scam work. I think the nature of the scam work has potentially changed. So previously mm. it was maybe, you know, edgier. And kind of, mm. you know, so it was lines that were maybe a bit controversial that maybe the client hadn't seen or had only ran in a sort of random shopping centre when it was closed, that kind of thing. Um, and I think the the work that people find more problematic these days does have more of a kind of social purpose bent. I mean, you know, let's be frank, obviously, it's great that people care about these issues and it's really important to, to kind of push the agenda. And, but it is a shame that the, there aren't kind of more that more work that gets the highest accolades isn't for kind of big brands that are putting lots of money behind it and you know powering their business using I mean obviously there are some there is some kind of very commercial work that does well 
but it's very it's very hard to get that sweet spot between kind of winning a creative award with something that has a, a huge budget and, and kind of a, is a big transformational kind of idea for a business. Yeah, because the creatives I speak to, like anyone, they want to make work that does make a difference. And that could be something about Black Lives Matter and transgender rights, or that could be something about, you know, something with a big brand. I think that you just want to feel like you're doing something that matters. And yeah, maybe it is just finding that right balance with the brands that you're working with. Yeah, it made me think about, we had a couple of pieces earlier in the year, one by Tess Alps, the former chairman of Thinkbox, and the other by Steve Harrison, the kind of creative director. And they were both talking about actually kind of the point of, you know, powering brands and powering businesses and, you know, employing people um, is a, should be a, an end into itself. Obviously, it's not the only thing that people want to sort of go to work for and strive for. Um, but actually keeping businesses going and keeping their staff employed is a, is a worthy sort of goal as well. Yeah, definitely. So in the, uh, as we're chatting about kind of work, I suppose this week there's been quite, we've had a flurry of ads in the last sort of three weeks. been keeping you very busy, I think, Brittany. Very busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's tricky. It was actually quite tricky to know which ones we should talk about. But um, one that really stuck out was the new ad for Sainsbury's by Wyden and Kennedy London. ever find yourself worrying about our planet or your health start with dinner dinner indeed because one plate made up of more fruit and veg isn't just better for you it's better for the planet too oh, the ad uses um, Sainsbury's new strap line which is helping everyone eat better are you a fan of the widens Sainsbury work Brittany yeah, I think since Widen started working with Sainsbury's, they've really found their groove and they've created some great ads for them. Um, but I was really struck by, you know, this ad has a similar look and feel to the other Sainsbury's ads in this campaign, but it takes this bigger stance about what, what is the purpose of Sainsbury's and in shopping at Sainsbury's. So it starts out by saying, if you ever find yourself worried about your planet or your health, start with dinner. And it actually, I think that there's a trend here. It reminded me of this campaign that Noor did last year, where they were encouraging people to become eativist. So not <laughs> spin on the word activist. Um, and also a recent ad by Innocent Drinks by um, that Mother created, which had a similar message of you know, helping the planet by choosing what kind of food you eat and buy. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think there's a definite theme there in food brands talking about their environmental credentials. But I wonder how much of a sway it is to people who are shopping for food. Like, would you go to Sainsbury's because you might help the planet? Or would you go because you just like that Sainsbury's and it's close to your house. <laughs> yeah, so the big say to me is about as exciting as some people's lives have been. In the, <laughs> yeah, in the I I mean, that got me through lockdown as my trips to a big Sainsbury's. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I think, you know, often the research suggests that people make more conscious decisions on environmental reasons. Um, but I'm not sure that's always necessarily borne out by the kind of truth you know I think we like to think sometimes that it has more 
sway on the decisions that we make than maybe it does on a practical basis. But I think that there is some there is something to it because I always use my parents as kind of like a barometer of like where where's the culture at with you know certain things because they live in small town America and shop at Walmart and the fact that they are now making choices about their food that is about being more conscious health wise but also environmentally to me shows that the culture around food is really shifting that people are starting to think about some of these factors more so than they would have in years past. Oh, well, well done, your parents. <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe I shouldn't be so cynical. Um, so the Sainsbury's ad was created by Freddie Taylor and Philippa Beaumont and directed by Philip Nilsson through Object and Animal. The other ad I wanted to talk to you about today, Brittany, was Shelter's new campaign by Who, What, Why. We need homes for people to feel safe. There's no security living in a temporary accommodation. I'm tired of this poor condition. I'm tired of being tired. Tired of wanting sleep, but tired of being deprived. On a hamster wheel, but the cycle's got me caged in. You want a day off, but I just need a day in a place I call home. Ain't wishing for no riches to be rich. I'm wishing for a kitchen and a fridge, a window and a sink. One hand washes the other. I thought it was really powerful. Did it move you? Yeah, I thought, you know, it's kind of a, a simple concept, but it was really powerful because what they were doing was highlighting the national housing emergency. So at the same day they released this campaign, they also released a survey which found that one in three people in Britain or 17.5 million are affected by the housing crisis. And that doesn't just include homelessness, that can include, you know, rent insecurity and, and various factors that make people vulnerable in their housing. Um, so they just used these black and white images of real people who are affected by the crisis projected onto housing. And it was just really striking to see these faces because I think when you see those statistics, it's kind of overwhelming and you might have a certain image in your mind of who is affected by the housing emergency, but you could see through this ad, it's everyday people just like you and me. Yeah, I mean, it's particularly important at the moment. I think the restrictions on rental evictions have just been lifted as well. So it is that making understanding that homelessness and kind of insecure housing affects so many more people than maybe you might see on the street. Yeah. So the ad, the film, sorry, was directed by independent film Sarah Gavron, who obviously also directed the 22 film Rocks and was interviewed by Brittany Kiefer um, <laughs> and Anu um, Henriquez, who was an associate director on Rocks and co-founded the publication Skin Deep. Go watch Rocks if you haven't. It's great. It's obviously um, nominated for quite a lot of BAFTA and I think it won the BAFTA for casting this year. Sarah Gavron's got a really interesting approach, hasn't she, to how she works. She does, yeah. So, Brittany, this is your final episode of the campaign podcast. Yes. How are you feeling? I'm um, I'm a little emotional, actually. It, like, Friday is my last day at campaign, and I've been here for six years and moved to London for campaign. So, um, yeah, it's a big it's a big change, and I'm really going to miss the team. Well, I hope hope you'll still manage to find time to listen to the podcast every week. I'll be a loyal listener. <laughs> Right. Well, we're, you know, we're going to miss you too. So that's it for now. But please stay tuned to listen to Gemma's interview with the founders of Common People. Hi, I'm Gemma Charles, the deputy editor of Campaign. Today we'll be talking about a new, fantastically named group called Common People, set up to champion working class Adlanders. So joining me is some of the group's founding team. 
So we have IPG's Jed Hallam, who heads up the media brand content studio, and who came up with the idea. Lisa Thompson, the planning director at Wavemaker North. Patrick Philpot, the founder of Vision Path. And Rushi Mira, who is a client-side marketer. So thanks for joining me, guys. Um, Jed, let me go to you. So what actually drove you to set up Common People in the first place? Give us a bit of the background. Yeah, of course. And thank you for having us on, Gemma, as well. It, I, we, we do really appreciate the support. Um, so Common People kind of came out of, I suppose, a culmination of a few different conversations that I'd had with everybody, everybody here that's involved uh, and a few other people that are involved that could be here today as well. And really, they're, they're kind of people that are either from a working class background, working class or, or involved in bringing more working class people into the industry. And it kind of all came about because a friend called Tom, who's involved in this as well, sent me an amazing but quite shocking Instagram story from uh, a costume designer and a stylist from London called Rosa Sophia Connell. And he sent it to me a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning. And it was just the most eloquent takedown of, of how class has become the last acceptable form of like socially acceptable form of discrimination. And I just kind of thought, I've talked about this for a long time. I'm all mouth and no trousers. It's time to actually try and figure out if I can do something. And there's loads of amazing people that are doing things within the industry. But I didn't really feel like there was a network for people to to kind of connect with each other, a sort of working class boys club, as it were. And so I text a lot of the people that are, that are with us today and said, look, would you would you be interested if we set up a WhatsApp group, see if we could, you know, see if other people might like to join it? And I sent that text at sort of half 10 on a Sunday morning. I sent a tweet out at 11 a.m. on that Sunday morning. And within within less than 12 hours, there were 300 people in the group, which was insane and quite terrifying, if I'm honest. An amazing sort of moment and amazing to see a lot of conversations taking place in that group where people who'd got 25, 30 years experience in the industry saying, I finally found like I found my people. Lisa, let me bring you in. So um, how have you found the reaction? What have you thought about all the kind of outpouring that's happened? I think it was quite overwhelming, really, um, when it happened. I think I started on this journey when I wrote my IPA essay about the fact that class isn't talked about as a diversity metric within um, the industry. And by nature of doing an essay, you have to look at it from a really academic, factual point of view. And since then, I'd started speaking to to Jedmore, but also other charities and organisations. And you realise how much of a how much of a challenge it is, and how how it needs some real clout to to start to solve the problem. But I think it was quite emotional that week. I think we all felt a bit overwhelmed at one just how many stories there were of people feeling like they needed to fit in. But I think also really quite exciting that this problem that we all knew was there, actually there's a group of people who want to solve it. And actually the support from the vast majority of people was overwhelmingly positive. So it's, it was overwhelming but exciting. And Patrick, I'm going to come to you now. So why does it matter? Why should we be thinking about um, class specifically? I think it's really important that we sort of celebrate the lived experiences that people from working class backgrounds have. And, and I think for businesses to recognise the importance of having, you know, diverse set of perspectives, uh, bringing those lived experiences into the work they do for their clients. And, you know, in the advertising and marketing industry, you know, where you're looking to, to connect with and market to, um, you know, to people from all backgrounds, making sure that you have in your organisations, um, you know, those perspectives and those insights that can then ensure you're really representing and connecting with people of all backgrounds in an authentic way. But I think also coming from a working class background, 
does give you a certain set of skills you know, around tenacity and, and perseverance and a certain drive and hunger that can be really powerful in any business. And I think businesses need to, to kind of be trying to bring more of that into their organisations right now. Um, and so connecting with more working class people, particularly at an early age, and trying to bring them into their businesses is going to be super important for just building the skill set of your organisation. Now, um, I, I'm sure some of you might have seen it, but just last week, a social mobility commission study revealed that there was this kind of behavioural code that made it harder for working class people to get promoted in the civil service. And uh, one of the stories that came out was that one civil servant said that she'd be sitting there and then her colleagues would sort of slip into Latin uh, in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> and I think this... This kind of illustrates how there, there are these kind of codes and, and ways of being that they can they can be very blocking. Now you, you've kind of touched upon it, but can anybody give some examples of some of the things that were said in the group? Just the kind of stories that um, were were coming out um, over the last kind of couple of weeks since you've formed. I'm happy to put my neck on the line with a personal story rather than pull something out of the group. The reason why I say so is because we're trying to keep the group to be as as safe and open as possible. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd feel even anonymously being being a little bit duplicitous if I was to take one of those stories. I think there's there are a set of codes that exist within the industry, and I think there's also a sort of set of for wanting not for wanting to make it sound too too sort of over the top, but sort of micro uh, microaggressions that exist as well. Now, I remember being 22, being at my first ever client lunch, really, really excited, incredibly anxious, like stomach in knots, because it was, you know, that, my first job I thought was going to be the best job that I'd ever get. And sitting at this lunch and everyone's going around kind of putting their order for what they want. And, and I asked for dolphin nose potatoes. And there's kind of two reactions to that, right? And one reaction is to go from you get from people is kind of like a knowingness. Because you're kind of like, oh, well, I've done something like that before. I've never heard that word said before. I don't know how to pronounce it. And there's another reaction, which I, I kind of experienced at the time, which was this sort of incredulous, I can't believe you don't know about Dauphinois potato. And it's like, as, as a sort of 22-year-old, still pretty fresh-faced, and having never heard anybody order that on a, on a menu, was quite galling. And it's it's those tiny little things that kind of build up where you feel like you have to hide who you were before. And I think we've, you know, we've all kind of shared a lot of stories as a smaller group and, and pitch work is pitch work is fascinating. Right. Because Patrick said uh, very rightly so. Right. You want a group of people that are representative of the population to be working on a brief. I think we've all been sat in a room before where we've been pitching for a, a client that is targeting lower socioeconomic people that have a lower socioeconomic background or working class background and heard people be incredibly derogatory about those people. The word Trav still seems to sneak into those conversations. The the sort of council house dinner type thing references get made all the time. They're made because there's nobody to pull. There's nobody in the industry to go. Oh, that's I. That's me. I'm that person that you're talking about and that you're mocking right now because the codes make it incredibly difficult for you to be yourself and to bring you know your whole self to work in order to make that a more uh, equitable and, and an environment for everybody to thrive in, we've got to change the culture of the industry, which is no mean feat. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Rushi, can I bring you in here? What's your experience been? Obviously, I'm your um, client side as well. So can you give a perspective? Firstly, um, you know, I am new to the UK. I, I've been here for the past three years. And I really did not know how big the class divide was 
until I sort sort of started understanding the nuances of it. And uh, you know, like Jet mentioned at the moment, I, I was I was in a group of people, and somebody mentioned that you know travelers uh, as people, you know, that whole class is just shit. Uh, their accent and you know they they they're just not a class sort of who can ever come into a corporate world and i was just wondering like why why that sort of uh discrimination or that stereotyping of the entire community and in such a developed and a mature economy actually that's something uh shocked me even more that such discrimination existed in such mature economies so i have heard these conversations and i yes um i think as a client it's very important as jet said that if you are marketing to a set of people who are not to a particular class we are marketing to the population of uk it's very important that we have the representation on our side as well we cannot be an elite set of people you know marketing to the people who we don't relate to who we do not respect and appreciate so it's very important that in our marketing teams we sort of build that representation to make sure that uh, we are doing justice and correct insights are being used to create our com- communications because if we have those biases in our mind i think those creep into our creative uh, the way we buy our media and i think we we pass on those biases to our agencies as well in many ways i think that's so interesting lisa do you want to come in on that yeah and i think as well it's it's important that businesses realize that one it's not just getting insight into the people you're trying to reach but all of the evidence around creativity and what makes the best ideas is diversity of thought and actually having people with different viewpoints and backgrounds increases that and i think there is a stat from deloitte that companies perform 33% better or have 33% more income if they have diversity of thought in their business and so actually it's not just a a kind of moral imperative that we should be getting people from different backgrounds in it's just a really smart business decision we will do better work and i think if you look to the kind of 70s and 80s which you see as a golden age of advertising Orlando Wood said in his book that you had social mobility you had people from middle class backgrounds and working class backgrounds working together and the result was great work so if we care about great work we should be caring about the makeup of our industry and also that when different people come in from different backgrounds they're able to be themselves because you're not going to get the best out of them if they're trying to hide who they are i want to just go back to something that um rushi said i wonder if the class thing is a uniquely uk kind of a construct that we um stress a bit more over here than perhaps in some other cultures can i bring you in on that patrick I think there is a is a very British thing about class. Perhaps it stems from aristocratic roots and and you know going way way back in history. I think it I think people from a more working class background feel that really keenly. There's this real imposter syndrome that seems to kind of exist for for those of us from that sort of background that we feel that you know we don't belong in certain places and and actually the way we can change that and change that sort of narrative is by recognizing back to you know the point of lived experiences and what Jeb was saying about you know bringing those perspectives is actually recognizing the the value of what you have experienced coming from a working class background and where that can be where that can be kind of brought into an organization into a business and uh, particularly advertising and marketing industry when you're trying to market to a particular audience i think if we can try and recognize the the importance and the value that coming from a working class background brings then it sort of will do away with the idea that actually being from a working class background you know almost perhaps does away with the whole idea it doesn't matter what class background you're from it shouldn't matter because uh, you all have something you know unique and different that we can bring 
based on the experiences we've had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rishi, I'll go back to you on this. So have you, are we a bit obsessed with class in this country, do you think? I think it's exacerbated by the whole schooling system here, to be very frank. The first question is, oh, you know, are you going to make sure that your child goes to private school? So when I entered the UK, everyone from... I, I don't know what class to call it, posh. Like, make sure your child goes to a private school because, you know, in the UK, the advice I was given is network is everything. So if your child, even if the school is not the best school in education, but it, the people around in the school will make sure that your child has a better future. But that, again, was a bit of a shock to me because where I come from, when I came into the UK, I realized that the whole of UK is such a developed economy. It really shouldn't matter what school you go to this country should be giving equal opportunities to everyone. So, yes, there is definitely a class divide, and I think it's it's made worse by the schooling that the schooling system that exists in the UK, because it shouldn't be that you know uh, you should be sending your child to a particular school uh, just to make sure that they are mingling around with a certain class and that guarantees them a better future. So there is a segment of people I would say are obsessed about the class divide and I just feel the schooling system is making it worse and that's that's purely my personal observation. I, I think I, I would I would second that as well. Jed would you second that as well because you I think he went to a, a comprehensive in Derbyshire am I right? Yeah it's 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 really funny and um, Dan Collinshute said don't don't ever read the subtweets and obviously when all of this went in campaign the first thing that I did is went and read the subtweets and I found a couple that were quite um, that weren't quite as celebratory maybe should we say and they were they were quite pointed about you know does class even exist and you know we're obsessed with class in the UK and they're really fascinating comments but especially when you found that they come from people that are very proudly and very openly middle class and at that point, you kind of think, well, class doesn't exist for you because it's never held you back. It's never stopped you from accessing anything or accessing anybody. And it's never stopped you from being promoted. So I think it's I, I wholeheartedly agree. I still think the schooling system is, you know, is, is geared up towards creating a multi-tier system. And I think our industry is as well. It, it's very easy if you've been the beneficiary of your your background and affluence to say that 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 shouldn't hold anyone back because you've never experienced it. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been a very interesting few weeks going through this because I think I've had a lot of D, I and E conversations over the course of the last few years. But this is the first time that I've really had the lived experience of what that means. And it is a tiny, tiny proportion of, I think, the lived experience of somebody who is visually diverse or, or wears their, their sort of diversity uh, in a very open way because you can hide your class. And you can you can swallow the codes and you can kind of, you know, you, you can drop your accent. My accent has inadvertently disappeared rather than intentionally disappeared. But you can you can hide those things and you can shield them away. Those are the things you do in order for your class not to hold, hold you back. Patrick, can I bring you in? Yes. Yeah, so what Jed just mentioned about class and, and kind of being able to hide it, I think goes to the very heart of the challenge here, which is that for a long time, you know, social diversity in a business has been the you know social mobility has been the the kind of the that last piece of the diversity jigsaw the you know the the, the hardest one to place and Jed and I have had a lot of conversations over the years about this around around social diversity and and it's because it is it is the one where you 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 can so easily hide it it is invisible and that I think is why there is still so much kind of room to develop and, and room to grow in 
tackling social mobility, social diversity, you know, socioeconomic background, working class representation in a workforce and in business. And the only way we can do that really is by creating opportunities and safe spaces where people from kind of more working class backgrounds can share all those experiences and kind of all that sort of, you know, those unique experiences they have that have, you know, got them, you know, to a position where they are now, whatever that journey looks like, all the kind of obstacles that have had to be overcome along the way, all the learning they've taken from that. And then, you know, celebrating all of that and looking at how you can kind of bring that really positively into your work, into your business, to your clients and whoever it is you're working with. So I think Jeb makes a really good point. You know, actually, we need to stop hiding it away. We need to stop, need to stop sort of hiding the fact that people from working class backgrounds wear it as a bit of a, a badge of honour. Um, but I think also a challenge to, to businesses and particularly advertising marketing is, you know, how are you creating those sort of, you know, safe spaces in your organisation for people to have those discussions? How are you ensure that people are kind of feeling genuinely included? And only then when you start to do that, will you actually see, I think, you know, the needle moving around social mobility, social diversity in this industry in particular. But I would say that across all industries, all businesses, you need those safe spaces for people to be able to speak up freely. Patrick makes a really good point. I just wanted to build on that because I think common people kind of took off a bit like a rocket without any of us anticipating how high it would go or how fast it would get there. Um, And we've spent a lot of time as a group over the last couple of weeks trying to figure out, you know, there are a lot of great organisations out there that are, such as Patrick's, that are are trying to solve the social mobility issue and bring more working class people and people from those backgrounds into the industry. And, you know, we we had a a, a sort of goal from the start, which was to make common people more common within the creative industries. And we're now starting to build out a set of partnerships that enable us to, one, reduce the barriers to entry to the industry. So making sure that we're working with careers advisors and university lecturers to make sure that these things are more more open and more prevalent and that it's it's clear that an opportunity or a, a career in the creative industries is, is feasible. The second is making sure that we're we're very, very clear with organisations and industry bodies around creating an environment in which working class people and people from a working class background can thrive and can actually develop. And, and we retain those people because I think that's, you know, that's arguably the, the biggest missing piece of the DIE puzzle anywhere is, you know, an equitable environment for people, because that's usually the first thing that people forget. And then the, the final thing which Patrick hit on is, is you know, we have some amazing people within the creative industries who have come from working class backgrounds, people like Terry White at Empire or people like Trevor Beatty or Dylan Williams, who have got incredible stories that we want to make sure that they're, you know, they're telling their stories as, as far wide and loud as possible to make sure that that 13 year old, 14 year old growing up in the north on free school dinners can see, can see someone like that and go, actually, that could be me, because at the moment, I'm not sure that really exists. Um, I just wanted to, because often when um, people talk about working class, sometimes the, it's, it's, refer, it's, it's kind of code for like white working class. So I did want to sort of touch upon the whole kind of intersectional nature of this whole thing, because we have got a situation where a large amount of ethnic minority people are actually disproportionately, in, well, at least in this country anyway, working class. So are you going to make sure that you kind of reach out in, in that way as well? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It is a hugely intersectional issue. And um, whilst I am from a working class background and I also happen to be female, I'm very aware that there's privilege that I have um, as being a white, per- a white person that 
people from different different ethnicities haven't had and I think it's really important that you that you look at diversity to include the social mobility lens because otherwise what can happen is if you look at it purely from what you can see so gender and race you will just bring in more people that have the same education as the rest of the industry or who have um, gone to private schools. It's really important that we get the views and experiences of people from different ethnicities on this debate, on this debate and hear their voice and hear how they tackle it. I think it 100% should not be one or the other. A proper diversity initiative should mean that anyone from any background with any thinking style should feel like that they can access the industry. And I actually do believe that if we look at diversity through a social mobility lens, we will, because of the very nature of the fact that there are different ethnicities that are more likely to be from a disadvantaged background, we will help the um, race um, dial shift as well. So I think this approach will really help, will help both challenges. That's great. Okay, right. This has been a fascinating um, discussion and I could, I'd like to carry on. Perhaps one day we'll go to the pub. Who knows? It might happen. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, let's, uh, we'll definitely have you back to talk about how it's going. And uh, yeah, good to speak now. Good luck with it. Thank you, Gemma. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the Campaign Podcast. Thank you to my colleagues, Gemma Charles and Brittany Kiefer, and the founders of Common People for joining me. This episode was edited by Lindsay Riley. You can read news and analysis by Campaign Magazine at campaignlive.co.uk. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe and leave a review. Goodbye, and I hope you can join us again next week.